0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School I'm Matt Carpenter on September 5th, Lord's Day Service. Get started. Our Father and God, thank you for the opportunity to gather to get today. Thank you for your word, for giving us the word where, that we can learn, where we can receive from you. I pray that we would now grow as we learn how to be faithful students of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you will probably notice at times. Uh, despite my height, I, I will raise this up and then slowly it will move down. So if you see me have to raise it up, that, that is, that's just that's the way it has to go sometimes. So that's happened before. It's not the worst thing that, that I've had to face in teaching. So anyway, we'll begin with a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, remind them of these things. Charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. This is a famous passage from the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in the book of second timothy and he is reminding here he's telling timothy to tell the church a message and that message is don't argue don't strive don't get into useless arguments about words about teachings that come to nothing I'm sure you've come across people because you're Presbyterian, at least now you are. You've come across people who like to argue about minute things, small things. And maybe even if you're from a different background, you've come across people who like to... I mean, some people just like to argue. Well, there's a lot more going on here than just mere argument, but Paul understood something that people can get... Totally wound too tight around the axle about things that don't matter as much. So he, he tells Timothy, don't argue about things like that because it results in ruin, but instead be diligent, or that word in Greek means study fervently, to show yourself, to present yourself approved to God, a worker. Who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. And that's what our Sunday school for September is about. It's about studying, learning, and becoming a student of interpreting God's word. So that's what this month we will emphasize. Now, the rest, so I'll teach this week. Next week it's going to be a little bit different because we have a special guest. Uh, coming to speak to us, Pastor Chris Wiley, and he will talk to us. It will not be as much about this topic, but then the week after that, David Francis will, be, will lead us through the next couple of weeks. I, this morning, just want to give a, a brief overview and some, some principles we can apply for studying Scripture. Now, the technical word for interpreting Scripture is this. It's hermeneutics. It sounds like a scary word, but it shouldn't be because it's just a a fancy word for interpretation. It's defined as the science and art of interpreting a text. The science and art of interpreting a text. Now hopefully that will be the driest thing you hear me say all day. Because whenever you call something a science, you usually lower it about three notches in some people's minds because what we want to we want to take everything and usually break it down. But I'm going to tell you what. God's Word is not only meant to be broken down. It's it's, meant, it's a gift to us to help build us up. And we can be guilty if we try to, to, to spread it out and, and to analyze it to finally, we can make it something where it doesn't nourish ourselves. The goal of this class is to nourish your soul and to learn how you can take God's word and interpret it so that you also can be nourished. Now, there are hopefully there are certain things that you know intuitively about working with Scripture. There are certain things that, that you understand and, and certain interpretations that you know are off. You've probably heard th- heard things before from teachers or from, from different pastors that you've thought, that doesn't, something doesn't fit here. So I'm going to give you a few scenarios. So first of all, the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 31. Famous passage. All these that I I read will be somewhat famous. Joel 2.31 says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn into blood. Okay, so if I'm teaching or preaching and you hear me say, this verse means that one day the moon is going to melt and it's going to be blood that's just going to fall from space. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. If you hear that, and I'm not just making that up, I've heard that before. If you hear that, you probably think to yourself, is is that really accurate? And then if you ask the question, is that accurate, someone will say, well, of course it is. Don't you believe the Bible? Okay, so that's one situation. Here's another. John 10, 7, Jesus said, I am the door. Okay? John 14, 6, I am the way. So here's the argument, and this is also common, not in our circles, but in some circles. A person says, well, look, because Jesus said, I am the door, and we know he's not a door, and also, because Jesus said, I am the way, but because there's all these wonderful I am statements in the book of John, Jesus said, I am the door. We know he's not a door. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We can know because of that, because Jesus, even though he said, I'm the door, and I'm not, he's not really, we can also say that he's not the only way to God. I hope that's registering some serious concern. In your mind. Okay, by the way, that's not Matt Carpenter, okay? I'm not, if I were teaching that, at at some point, someone would need to kindly escort me off the (laughs) teaching premises. But there are people who take that and who adopt that. Okay, so, so here's another. You read the story of David and Goliath, one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, at least for our culture. Okay? And you, you read that and you find encouragement because you just got passed over for a promotion at work from someone who, who was connected, already had connections, who married the boss's daughter, and he got promoted even though you deserved it. And you take that story of David and Goliath to mean that the Goliath in your life is your coworker who's now got elevated and one day he's going to be taken down. That's a very personal application that people draw. And then one more. You read Genesis 16 about Hagar and Sarah. Abraham, he couldn't have a son with Sarah at first. He had a child with Sarah's maid, Hagar. So Hagar was Abraham's concubine. And then later on, we know that he would have a child with Sarah. And then a preacher says, he he tells you, Hagar represents the old covenant. It represents Mount Sinai. And Sarah represents the new covenant. It represents Mount Zion. Does that register any concern? Well, of these four that I've given you, one is correct there's one that works. We'll talk about that soon. Okay, the common thread among these various explanations is that it comes down to your method of interpretation or it comes down to your hermeneutical method. So, again, the goal this morning is to just give you some principles for interpreting. God's word that you can take from here and you can apply on your own when you're reading because it's not just the preacher or the elders who are called to interpret scripture one of the gifts that our reformed fathers wanted for us is that we could have the word of God in our own language that we could read the fact that Literacy is rampant, is a gift. It's a gift of people who said it's important for us to know scripture. The the American emphasis on everyone reading is not so that we can all be super smart and, and brag about how many books we've read. It's that we can understand the book of God's word. So. As I said earlier, hermeneutics is both a science and an art. It's Greek in origin, and it's interesting, it's from the same Greek word that the Greek god Hermes gets his name. Hermeneutics, Hermes. Hermes is the god of speech, of language. He is the one who delivered messages to other gods. So he would take the, he would take divine messages, and I hope this is starting to stir a little something in you. He would take a divine message from one God and deliver it to another. So you tell me, how does that apply to us? And we're not pagans. I'm not talking about pagan messages, but, but what, is it, what does it say about us when it comes to interpreting God's word? What do we have the privilege of doing? Go ahead. Oh, I thought you raised your hand and I asked question. <laughs> Sorry. Never going to itch again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, c- come on, come on. What does it mean about us being able, if Hermes, the Greek god, delivered the messages of the gods to one another? He delivered divine messages. What do we have the privilege of doing? with Scripture when we interpret it. We interpret Scripture and then proclaim it to us. Yes. We also are the bearers of a divine message. But not just one of us. All who are filled with God's Spirit have this privilege. Everyone, old and young, great and small. So we should be diligent as Paul said, to be a worker who studies to show ourselves approved, but also, as he says back in 2 Timothy 2, verse 16, shun profane and idle babblings. Learning how to interpret God's word means learning to differentiate between what's junk, what are bad interpretations, and what's good. What what does wisdom look like? What does wisdom sound like? So, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, though. We've been given these gifts, the gift of God's Word, and the ability to interpret because we have the Spirit. So, the first principle I want us to, to see and to hear this morning, when it comes to interpreting God's Word. And this will not, I will go ahead and tell you right now, this will not sound very profound, but it is an important point, especially in a day when people say the opposite of what I'm about to, to write and to say up here. The very first point, the first principle is this. Words mean things. You say, I came all the way to Sunday school to hear that? Well, yes. That's not the only thing. I promise anyone will get a refund if you're not satisfied on your way out. Okay? If you have any, any questions about that you can see one of the elders. Words mean things. And we would all say, yes, we know this. But think about what words are. What are words? Words are made of what? Letters. What are letters? They're symbols, yes. They're lines, circles, half circles, quarter circles, all put together, and they all represent something. Sounds. And then, when we put those letters together, they make up larger symbols that bring to mind particular what? When you think of the word apple, what comes to your mind? Apple. Yes, not A-P-P-L-E. Now, I know there's always people who say, yes, that's actually what came to my mind. I thought of the spelling, and that's fine. What comes to the mind of most people? A picture, a symbol. When you think about the word marriage, you don't think M-A-R-R-I-A-G-E. Glad I spelled that right. You don't think about that. You think of your spouse. You think of a wedding you've been to. You think of something like that. So words bring forth images. Now, this is not a random mental exercise, but it brings forth a greater truth that words are gifts. They are gifts of God. Jesus Christ is called what in the Logos? Ah, uh, well, I just gave it away. John 1-1. Jesus is what? Yes, no, that's great. That's great. That one does not work. Yes, a bear. That is a loaded Greek word. The logos in Greek. This is a combination of a lot of concepts. It's the, the logos is. It means truth. It means perfect form. It means order. It means rash. It means that. Rational meaning. The phrase rational meaning. All this is encompassed in the logos. So John one one. In the beginning was the logos, the word. That, that that's what that what's translated word in English. It means logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Jesus is the one who brings order to all things. The words that we use have meaning because Jesus Christ is Lord. That is an amen point. Amen. J- j- just amen. just for, for future reference, when you hear that, that's, that's always something that should immediately pop up an amen. Because if it did not, we would be back in Babel. We all know Babel or by its more modern name, Babylon. It's not a place you want to be, right? I mean, Babylon is not the good guy in Scripture. So, they had their language dispersed. But Jesus, when he comes, he, is, he comes as the Lord of all words. Not just worlds, Words. So, he, as the one who brings order to all things, we must approach Scripture with the belief that the words given are ordered by the Logos himself. And this is where it really would blow the mind of, of, a, of a Greek thinker, because for the Greeks the idea of logos it was a it was a form it was just that an idea it's not a person so jesus coming as the logos he is man and he's all this other wrapped up so words have meaning and we have to take when we approach scripture we have to take that because otherwise we will not have any kind of cohesive perspective on the word itself. So because Christ is the Lord of all words and because we know that the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation has meaning not only in the individual words themselves but in the particular order of the words they are ordained by Christ. So nothing you can read in Scripture is by accident it is ordered by the Lord God himself. So because God is, because God is, all things have meaning. By the way, you can also take that and apply it to whatever situation you're going through right now. It's not just about words. It's about everything you'll ever face from now to your death. It has meaning because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Logos and he brings order to everything that we think has no order. Point number two. After we said words have meanings, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. We're all familiar. Second Timothy two, excuse me. Second Timothy three, verse sixteen. Okay. Can anybody tell me what Second Timothy three, verse sixteen, says? All scriptures God breathed. Yes. Go ahead. And it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly put for every good work. That's right. Amen. <laughs> and, by the way, that is a gift to us. All Scripture, everything that we read, is given by God's Spirit. It is ordained. Those who wrote the text of Scripture were inspired by God. They, the scriptures are God's exhalation. Just like when Adam was given life. What is it that gave Adam life in Genesis? That's right. It is the breath of God. What gives life to a person who's dead and trespasses and sins? The breath of God. When the Spirit brings the Word alive in your soul, That's called regeneration. And it is a precious, precious gift. So, Scripture is living. It is powerful because the, the Scriptures are the breath of God. It's not that they become the breath of God at times when we read Psalm 23 and we get goosebumps. That's great. We can be grateful for that. But they don't become the breath of God at times. They are the breath of God. Whether we feel like it or not. There are plenty of times when you don't think reading Scripture, when you don't think preaching, when you don't think hearing God's Word is doing anything to you. But it is. And at times, it's like when you're a little kid. And you don't want to eat your vegetables that your parents say are really important. Most of you are adults, so you may not remember these times. You're told to eat something because it's good for you. And you would rather have a piece of cake because it tastes real good. Well, as adults, we, we have to deal with that type of thing as well. Sometimes we don't think that God's word is good for us. We don't think that it's doing anything, but it's still inspired by God. And in fact, sometimes the places, the things that we don't want to hear are what we need to hear the most. So, when we approach Scripture, we have to consider that we're not just approaching any literary work. We're coming to the Spirit-inspired Word of God. So we know there is meaning in it because God gave it to us. His spirit is given is made it the life of God to us. So, number one, words mean things because Christ is the Logos. Number two, the Holy Spirit inspired Scriptures. Number three, now this is where the principles get in very practical. Okay, at this point, the first two things are things that we must remember when we approach the Word. But now we get into actual ways, things that we we should do when we come to the scriptures. Okay? So number three, a third principle is when you're reading scripture, remember the genre of what you're reading. What does the word genre mean? Come on. Type, style. Right. It means type. It means the yes style category. We all know that there are different genres of literature. We know that Scripture has different genres within it. So some of Scripture is history. Some of it's law codes. Some of it is personal expression and prayer. Some of it is wisdom literature. Some of it is poetry. We have stories or parables. There's prophecy with very unique language associated with prophecy. There are letters written. And then there is the apocalyptic genres. Most famous apocalyptic genre is what? most of let me ask you this the most famous apocalyptic book revelation -hmm. Revelation. exactly part of what makes revelation really difficult is that revelation is apocalyptic literature that is based on largely the words of other prophets in the old testament and pictures of the prophets and, and what portion of Scripture are we the least familiar with, usually in the Old Testament? Prophets and then perhaps the Torah. Okay? And by Torah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not referring to Genesis and Exodus as much as Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy. So guess what Revelation emphasizes in the Torah. Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy, and the prophets. It's dense, folks. It's not impossible though, okay? It's not impossible. Don't ever come to God's word and say, this is above me. No, it may take work, but you got eternity, okay? You might as well go ahead and start now. So remember the genre. And because once you, when when you're looking at that, when you consider the genre of what you're reading within that, just an an added layer, add to the fact that within these genres there are unique poetic devices sprinkled in. You have uh, metaphors, you have sarcasm, you have alliteration, you have hyperbole, and plenty more. But again, because you have the Holy Spirit of God abiding within you, you are capable of studying. You are capable of meditating. Because there are some of the truths of Scripture that only come by serious prayer and meditation over long periods. And you know what that does when you're meditating on something that's even if it's something that seems dense. nourishes your soul it feeds you so remember the genre if you try to interpret the parables of Jesus as history or the personal expressions of David in the Psalms as law or the wisdom books as law it's it's going to get confusing if you, if you try to, somebody t- tell me a parable. Just, just throw out a parable. Parable of the sower. All right, parable of the sower. Good. If you take that and you say, all right, because of what we read here, I'm, everything in this parable, every, every element must have a particular meaning in history. So, so I'm going to so break down the, the different seeds that were sown, and I'm going to say that the first seed... Dr. Cherry, can you please re- re- remind me which one was the first seed that was sown? The hardened path. All right. So that's one period of history. And then the next period is... The rocky soil. Rocky soil, and then the one after that... Right, thorny, weedy soil. And then the the one after that is the good soil. So we're going to break these down into these neat periods of history. And we're going to declare what the kingdom of God is going to do. Now, is that legitimate? Not really. Now, I'm sure there would be some brothers who would say, oh, actually it is. Because, okay. But it's not in... In Scripture, that is not the way Jesus or any of the apostles present the parables. Or that they that's not the way they interpret the parables. That is a man-made, added layer. So we have to be careful. And one last example, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go when he's old. Finish it. He, it. he will not depart from it. Therefore, good parents, if you do every single thing the way you're supposed to do, if you raise if you raise your child, if you check off the 500 bullet point list every day, you will have 100% participation, and the souls of your children will go on to glory. You can guarantee it. Is that how we are to interpret Proverbs 22, 6? Proverbs, 20, Proverbs in general are wisdom books. So is Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon is wisdom and poetry. That's another very dense one that we don't need to try to explain right now. i going to have to raise the age limit for Sunday school. Actually, uh, Jewish, Jewish men could not read Song of Solomon, I've been told, until they were 30. Now, I may have sparked your interest to read songs. Hey, it's the word, okay? It's the word. I learned a few things when I was young when I had my first year-long Bible reading plan. (laughs) Remember the genre, okay? Number four. Fourth principle is remember the original audience. remember the original audience the people to whom the various biblical books were written lived in a time and place in history they lived in a particular culture they had certain rulers when you think about these things some stuff will make sense for instance again we'll use the parable of the sower When you when you when you look at the parable of the sower and you see this this farmer doing what? Is he planting the way that gardeners in Alabama plant? No. How do we plant? When you want tomatoes, what do you do? You don't just take tomato seed and just throw it out everywhere. No. You dig a hole. Make sure there's some fertilizer in it. You put your I think it's you. Made a plant, it's already in there, you put it down, and then you put dirt over it, and then you water it very well, and you, you, all that. But that's not how they sowed seed back then. How did farmers sow? They scattered it. It will not make sense to us if we try to shoehorn the way that we garden today into the, what they were doing back then. That has a term, it's called anachronism. You don't have to remember that, this is just extra. Anachronism is when we try to fit something that we do, a modern idea, and we try to pin it down on what they used to do. And it doesn't work. So so maybe another example would be, here we go. I can remember thinking, When the first time I ever heard about the, I don't remember, I think maybe the American War for Independence. And I heard about, you know, the Americans fighting the British and of course, you know, being raised the good young patriot that I I was, I didn't understand why it took the Americans so long to win. So I said, why didn't we just drop a bomb on the British? Just fly the plane and drop some bombs on them and then we win. That's anachronism. (laughs) I was committing this fallacy at a young age. But we have to be careful about doing that with God's word. We have to remember when we're looking at, say, like Paul's letter to Corinth, it's not going to make sense. when he, He talks a lot about sexual immorality back then. And it it would not make sense unless you have studied some and know that, that Corinth was a place of great moral debauchery. You had temples to the different gods everywhere, and at all these temples in order to worship, you would have temple prostitutes, male and female. And the people who were in the church had come out, many of them had come out of those situations. And they were having to learn what godly worship looks like. And it has nothing to do with all of that. It won't make sense unless you consider the people to whom Paul is writing. So, that's, that's the fourth principle. Remember the audience, the original audience. And, and this, uh, one more thing I'll add under this: we have to be careful about not trying to apply too quickly verses that we read to ourselves. This goes back to, to remember the, what I told you about David and Goliath. I said you're, you see another guy who gets promotion over you, and so you're going to apply this verse now, or the story of David and Goliath as. That man who got the promotion is Goliath, and you're David, and one day God's going to bring him down and hopefully use you to do it. We can laugh at that, but that's, a. will ask like this, have you ever heard of Christians who do anything like that? Maybe long ago and far away? Of course. You know, Isaiah 58, verse 14 says, I will cause you to ride upon the high hills of the earth. You can't take that verse and say, God has told me I'm going to have a horse ranch in Wyoming. <laughs> because he said, I'm going to cause you to ride on those high hills. This stuff happens. And what I'm not trying to look. I'm telling you things. I, I didn't do that exactly. I'm telling you things that I have done myself. Okay. This is not me making fun of other people. This is stuff that that I've thankfully had godly adults who over the years have reminded me. God's word is not something we can take and make it mean whatever we want to. It has a meaning, and our job is to find out what that meaning is. So remember the original audience. The last point, number five. And I'm not going to say remember, I'm just going to give you the point. Okay. Scripture builds on itself. That's not the best way to say it because this is not something that it just does on its own. Again, remembering that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired Scripture, that Christ is the Lord of all words. Scripture, it, it grows, it blossoms, it builds. It's not 66 little books that were just randomly packaged together because they somewhat harmonize. Because God himself is the author. He is the author. There is one author of Scripture. Because he is the author, nothing is there by accident. And as Scripture, as we read further and further... Whether or not the authors themselves knew that they were building on previous what was previously written, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Whether or not they knew it, though, God himself was doing this on purpose. He was building Scripture, and he was expanding what's going on, and he was building on what was previously given. Now, yes, we have... Other, we have books that are divided, but we can use what's in Scripture to interpret other parts. So, the example of Abraham and his two—I think you know—well, one and a half wives, you could say, Sarah and Hagar. And I said that if a preacher says that that hagar represents the old covenant and hagar represents mount sinai and then sarah represents the new covenant she represents mount zion you say that sounds a little weird well if i if it was just me coming up with that i would say yeah it does but how could i say that where would i get that from does anybody know close same author yes me <laughs> Galatians chapter three. The apostle Paul says this. He says, "Hagar." No, no, I'm not going. You don't have to take my word for it. I'm going to read this <laughs> because it's it's unique. So, Galatians chapter three. Let's see. He says. And this is the problem when you don't thoroughly look it up beforehand. You can get Oh, sorry. Let me, let me take that back. It's 4, Galatians 4. That's my one mistake for this five minutes. Verse 21. Tell me, who are you who desire to be under the law? Do you not hear the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, Hagar, the other by a free woman, and the free woman was Sarah, but he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh; he who is of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants: the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now, which now is, and is in bondage to her with her children. But the Jerusalem above, that is, uh, which is the mother of us all excuse me. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. That's Isaiah 54, verse 1. For the desolate shall be to have more than for the desolate has many more children than she that has a husband. So where did we get this? This interpretation is from God himself. That's how we use Scripture in interpreting scripture we when we and when we understand this we can then further apply it to all kinds of things and you can get into some really neat stuff and this is what i believe david will do in future weeks he will he will talk about some of the the amazing ways that, that we can learn more about god just from various things we see in his word but for us when, when we understand that scripture builds on itself we have to be sure again that when we're reading we need to understand what the author is doing and that means not just stopping with one verse one of the most awesome uh, amazingly titled small booklets i've ever seen was called never read a verse cannot remember who the author was right now, but it's called Never Read a Verse. And the point was you cannot stop with reading one verse because we don't understand the context of, what's that, of what that verse is talking about if we only read one. Like even, again, go to Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, is that a beautiful verse? Absolutely. But it has much more meaning to it when we see that before it, God is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Who is the one who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death? You're not just walking through the valley yourself. If we did, we'd all die. Our shepherd is the one who's leading us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's the one who has led us in green pastures. He has fed us. He's given us the water to drink. And so... Going through the valley of the shadow of death, as hard as it is, we can know when we read the entire psalm that we are led there by God, our shepherd. And then it ends that even though our enemies are around us, he prepares a table for us. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever forever. So that valley you're going through as hard as it is, God is with you. He's leading you through that because he's taking you somewhere. He's taking you to be with him in his house. It had so much joy and beauty to having to go through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, yes, we can be thankful that he's with us. But if you stop at that one verse, you miss so much of what's there. So Scripture is building. Even the verses before and after help us to see how it is building. So when you take all of these five principles, that words mean things, and again, within words meaning things, Jesus Christ is the Lord of words. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. We remember the genre that we're reading. We remember the original audience. And the Scripture builds on itself. That leads us to a particular interpretive method All of this goes into one particular method, and it is the foundational method for interpreting Scripture that is a gift to us, again, from our... uh, It was recovered, I'll say. It was not discovered, but recovered by our Reformed Fathers. And it is called this. It's called the... (laughs) Grammatic, or you can say grammatico, however you choose to do it. The grammatico-historical method. The grammatico-historical method. Now, I didn't want to tell you that that word at the beginning. Because when you tell people that word, you know what happens? You hear this loud pop, 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 pop of all these eyelids closing. You don't want that. But this is just basic interpretation of God's word. So, you know, if you want to, that's fine. You, you can forget about that. But apply these principles. It just means that we're interpreting Scripture based on the method, excuse me, the meaning of the words that are used, the type of grammar and genre. We remember the audience and the culture, and we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We don't exalt one portion and belittle another. We don't come to God's word and say, well, I know that this can't be true because it says this. Remember that fallacy that I was talking about earlier with with John? We know that Jesus is is not the door even though he says he is, so we can know that he's not really the way, the truth, the only way to God. It doesn't work. Because he is. He is the only door. He is the only way. So, In conclusion, interpreting Scripture is something we are called to do. Thanks be to God, we have more tools at our disposal for this than at any other time in history. So one of your best gifts, if you can find just a a basic concordance is a place to start. A concordance just lists different words that are used in Scripture. And you can look up what they mean in the original language. Now, I'm not saying that if you have a concordance, then you can go take on anybody, and anyone's interpretation. That's not... Don't use a concordance as a tool to throw at your preachers, okay? That's not necessarily what I'm saying, but you should interpret God's Word, and if you hear something that's taught anywhere that's contradictory to God's Word, that should be brought up. Okay? So, interpreting is something we are called... To do. So, and all this is to say, come to God's Word with an open and humble heart. Listen to what God is saying to His people when, he, when you read Scripture, and submit to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website. At trinityreformedkirk.com That's Trinity Reformed K-I-R-K, dot com.